What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Amen. Church, let's grab our Bibles. We are in the second to last chapter of the book of Isaiah. We're going to finish up next week this great prophetic book. Today, though... We have chapter 65, verses 17 to 25 on the desk for us to consider. Let's stand together for the reading of God's holy word as we acknowledge here that God's word is inspired, inerrant, infallible, the perfect and only word of the great and living God. Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and a sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Verse 24, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy. And all my holy mountain says the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, please don't be offended at me, but my favorite state is not Pennsylvania. <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't hit me with those daggers. I see them. Pennsylvania is my second favorite state, all right? It's better than California, that's for sure. It's better than Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut. It's my second favorite state, but my heart will always belong to Ohio. I'm from Ohio. I was born there. I love it. It's my hometown, Cuyahoga Falls. Uh, For a while, I lived away from my home state, 11 years in Florida, now here in Pennsylvania. And every time I drive home, the same thing happens to me. I well up with emotion. I can't hold it back. Um, There used to be a bread factory right on the corner of Route 8 
and Broad Boulevard. And whenever we'd get into Cuyahoga Falls, you could smell the bread baking. It's no longer there, but I can still smell the bread when I come into town. It's now like a UPS store, but I still smell the bread when I come into town. And then I make a left on Broad and another left on the 16th Street, the street that I grew up on. And the street is exactly the same as it was when I was a kid playing on the street. And then finally we turn into my parents' driveway and we get onto my, my front porch. And I, I almost cry every time. I can feel the emotion even now thinking about how much I love my hometown. Dorothy had it right. There's no place like home, right? But I got a point here and it's simply this. There, uh, there's a sense in which when you get onto the front porch, you're there, but you're not there yet. Does that make sense? Like, like there's a, the front porch is this strange uh, mixture between you're still traveling to the house. You're not yet in the house. And yet there's a sense in which you're already there. You're welcome. You're at the right address. You're at the place you love. You're already there, but you're not inside. And in, in Ohio, just like here in Pennsylvania, we've got cold weather. We've got inclement weather. You may be standing in the, the rain as it kind of hits you at the slant. You're not inside yet. You're not in the warmth of the house. You're not behind the security of the locks. You're not at the table yet with your, with your family eating that Thanksgiving dinner. You're not yet sitting at the hearth or by the fireplace. You're there, but you're not there yet. Does that make sense? There's a, there's a weird sense in which there's like you're home, but you're, you still have some to go yet. And if you could just capture that feeling of being already there and yet not yet inside, I want you to think of this as what is happening in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 25, because Isaiah, like, look, for, um, for, for this whole book, he's, he's been raising up his trajectory of his preaching ministry, right? So I've covered this so many times, you probably know this already by heart, but the first 39 chapters, Isaiah is preaching to his own day, right? 740 BC to 680 BC, he's got the Assyrian invasion, but then he lifts up his gauge, his gaze, and for chapters 40 to 56, he's, he's mostly preaching forward to the Babylonian exile, which takes place after his own, his own lifetime. But now in the last few chapters, and we're really coming down to the end of the book, we're going to finish it next week, Lord willing, but in the last few chapters, Isaiah lifts up his gaze and he begins to speak of a time that's, that seems to be beyond. It seems to be a, a stage or a time or an era in which the kingdom of the Messiah, in one sense, it can be legitimately said that it's here. It's here. It's now. It, it, it's already. And yet there's another sense in which it doesn't seem to be fully manifest. And we're going to look at some of the ways in which we experience that tension here in this, in this text. But one of the first things that we see, we're kind of confronted with this in verse 17, is this verse that's starting off the whole thing. Look at verse 17. I hope you have your Bibles open with you, by the way. So what we do here is preach through the Word of God. But look at verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And so you think to yourself, okay, so we're talking about heaven, right? Because he just said that. I create new heavens and a new earth. And by the way, that's the way that Peter and John used this phrase. We just heard a line from, uh, what was it, Peter? 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3, 13, he says this, but according to this promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so Peter's talking about this new heavens and the new earth as though it were future entirely. And yet what's really strange about this passage here in Isaiah 65, and it's not an easy mystery to unravel, I'll grant you that, 
is that it sounds as though Isaiah is simultaneously talking about the, the heavens themselves that we're waiting for, we're longing to be there, and yet there's also a stage in which, like, this can't be heaven. Because look at verse 20, and this is the hardest verse of the whole text. There seems to be death here. So how is that heaven? Like, I get it that, that life is a little bit longer. You know, an infant won't die but in about a few days. Uh, a young man shall live a hundred years, but there's still death. So what do we make of this? What's happening here? When is this? This is what the theologians have to ask when they're confronting this particular chapter is, when does this take place and where is he talking about? Is this a scene in heaven or is this a scene on earth? It's not entirely clear at first blush. And so this idea of being at the front porch, I just want you to hold on to that because some of the better theologians, in my view, they speak of this chapter as capturing the tension between what is already true about Messiah's kingdom and simultaneously what has not yet been fulfilled. We're standing, as it were, on the front porch of eternity. Now let me have an opportunity to work through that a bit with you this morning. Certainly this is a difficult text, but let's go ahead and divide the text into two main streams of thought. First of all, dealing with this idea of the already and the not yet, let's talk first of all about what is clearly not yet in Isaiah 65, right? And then we'll turn the corner and I'll show you some of the things that are certainly already true. And so here we are, we're in this tension, the front porch of eternity between what is already true and yet not yet entirely fulfilled. So let's start off with a not yet. Uh, look down at your feet for just a moment. Anybody in heaven yet? Anybody see clouds? Raise your hand if you got bricks of gold under your feet right now. Carpet was just clean, that's a good thing. Thankful for that, that happened last week. But we're not in heaven, right? Like, we still live in this world. No, none of us have harps in our hands. We don't have white robes upon us. And there's a sense in which what Isaiah is talking about here in this chapter can't possibly be true yet. So let me give you a couple of examples. Look at verse, chapter 64, verse 19. 64, 19. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping, and the cry of distress. There's no way that's true about where we are right now in this point in redemption history. Can't be true. Why not? Well, because there's crying and weeping everywhere if you have eyes to see it. I mean, look around. This is a world in which there's great cruelty. Is there not? Uh, yes, there absolutely is. The scriptures talk in Revelation about a day when God will wipe every tear from every eye. But there's a lot of tears in people's eyes at this point in redemption history. And yes, there's a sense in which Isaiah is preaching forward to Messiah's coming, Messiah's reign. But even as Christ has already come, there's a sense in which the tears of this world have not yet been dried off by the hand of God. Right? I mean, no doubt about it. Just look around you. Look at your own life. Think of your own experiences. Think of some of the experiences that your family are going through right now. There's cruelty. In this world, there's violence in our cities, there's great disappointments, there's tragedies, there's car crashes. I hate car crash stories, right? Pandemics, people disappoint us. Let me ask you a question, and I'm serious. When is the last time you cried a real tear because of the pains of this world? Has it been a while? I don't mean because you were moved by something you saw in a commercial or a Hallmark movie. 
I'm talking about when is it, or cutting onions on the kitchen table. I get that, right? That's a different thing. When is the last time you cried a real tear? Because you looked out at this world and you realized that the pain here is overwhelming. Has that happened to you recently? If you can't think of a time that you shed a tear because of something tragic happening in your life or this church or your family's life or this nation or this world, you can't even remember the last time you shed a tear. I'll tell you this. It says a lot more about your heart than it does the condition of the world. Because there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of agony. And if you don't have eyes to see it, Maybe you go along without a lot of emotion in your life, but there's no way that 6419 can be said to be true of today. That there is no sound of weeping or crying or distress, because there certainly is. And I, heart, I hope that your heart is moved by it when you encounter it. All right? So that's not yet true yet. Now let's go on to verse 20, because this is the trickiest wicked of the, of the whole passage, in my opinion, here. Let's have a look at the language more closely. No more... Shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days? For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be cursed. You look at a verse like that and you say to yourself, that can't possibly be true of today. Because there's still infants that die, aren't there? I've been a pastor for over 20-some 20, 20 years. And praise God, I've only had to do a couple of funerals like this, but when, when you do one of these, I'll tell you what, these are the hardest funerals you'll ever do. What do you say when something like that happens? Right. Do young men always live to 100 years old? Of course not, they don't. Sometimes they die right in what would seem to be the prime of life. When I was in high school, our, our soccer team, three years in a row, we had somebody on our soccer team die. First year, somebody died of an asthma attack right after practice, right on, right on the soccer field. Second year, one of, our, one of our varsity guys had leukemia and died. The third year, one of the players on our team had a, a brain tumor and died. It was, we, were, we were just overcome with grief. It's terrible when young people die. And yet Isaiah is saying that there will be some time in which we don't experience that pain anymore. That can't possibly be now. And I don't even want to dwell on this thought much longer, to be completely honest, because it still hurts to think about some of these things. But this does happen. Young people do die. There are accidents. There are overdoses. There are servicemen that go off to serve in the world, and they come home in a casket. So how can this possibly be true of now? It can't. And not only that, but it doesn't sound like heaven either, because heaven doesn't have death. That's one of its hallmarks. So again, we sort of run into this problem here of what in the world is Isaiah talking about? When is, does this place, when does this take place and what world is he even talking about here? And so we look at the end of the passage here. You come down to the verse 25 towards the end and it concludes like this. They shall not hurt or destroy and all of my holy mountain, says the Lord. And once again, we look at a verse like that and we, we say like, that's not now. It wasn't Isaiah's day either. And it's not now and Messiah's already come. And so what do we make of this whole passage? What do, we, what do we do with this? Like We still have a lot of hurt in our lives. We still have a lot of destruction. If I asked you to raise your hand right now, if you had no hurt in your whole life, nobody would raise their hand because we all do. It's either us 
or it's our families, or it's our friends, but we have all kinds of concerns and troubles and anxieties in this life. Uh, we worry for our children. We worry for the sake of our parents. Uh, we lose jobs. Sometimes our finances go haywire. Sometimes we get rejected and hated by people that we thought loved us. Yeah? Sometimes we get cancer. Sometimes the devil prowls around and destroys all the things that we thought were good or we hoped could be good. We experience disappointments. Others fail us or we're the one who disappoints others. And that happens too. Marriages break apart. Children go astray. And so there's a real sense that we can look at Isaiah 65, 17 to 25 and say, and legitimately be right, this is not yet So that's it then, right? But hold the phone. Hold on a second. Because something has taken place between Isaiah's time and ours. Obviously. In fact, I'll give you seven things, super quick, that must make a difference here, that are different between us and Isaiah. And I think it's fairly obvious that what's between Isaiah and us is what? The coming of Christ. And so let, let's tick them off. A, A through G here. A, Christ has come. He's been born. He's lived a perfect life. He's announced the arrival of his kingdom. In fact, when Jesus shows up, what does he preach in Mark 1.14? What is one of Jesus' first sermons? He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Present. B, his sacrifice has been made and the Father has accepted it. His death on the cross avails for us to take away our sins. Those of us who believe we've been justified by grace through faith in Christ. That has to make a difference, doesn't it? C, the devil has been defeated, though he's not yet fully destroyed as he will be in hell. But he's certainly been bound, Mark 3.27, Revelation 22. The devil and his work have been blunted or muted or restricted in some sense, at least by the victory of Christ. Christ has been raised. D, the temple and its sacrifices are done away with. So the old economy of how salvation worked with the temple and the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the oxes and the, the blood and the goats and the lambs, all that is done. E, the Holy Spirit has come in Pentecost. We have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling with us. F, the Word of God has come in its perfect and final and scripturated form. We have more of the revealed will of God than Isaiah ever had, right? And G, the gospel is now going out to the very ends of the earth. And so we can legitimately say that what was not yet in Isaiah's time, much of which has come to fruition now for us, we are living now in the age of Messiah's present reign and rulership and so there's a sense where we can go back through the same text and we can say yes there's a not yet but clearly there's also an already here and the already is very very good let me give you a couple of examples let's look back at the scriptures again as we work through this look at verse 18 gladness but be glad and rejoice forever and that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So we have real joy now. We do. Right here, 2021, Gospel Fellowship PCA, October 10th. We have a gladness that the unbelievers do not have, don't we? We've experienced a joy. I hope you can say this about yourself, that there is a real present reality joy and gladness that we have that the unbelievers they just don't even get it they don't know what we're talking about 
When the unbelievers think about gladness and happiness, they think about wine, they think about sex, they think about football, they think about golfing, they think about boating on the weekends. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things necessarily, but that's the limitation of their joy. They point their joys to the things of this world. And I'm not saying, look, I know that God has created this big, glorious, and beautiful world. And yes, there's a ton of joy to be had right here. I mean, look at it. My goodness, it's October in Pennsylvania. It's the most beautiful place in the world when the leaves change. See what I did there? Just won you all back. <laughs> you were mad at me, now you love me, right? There is real joy and gladness in this present world. And yet, there's a sense in which our joy as Christian believers goes deeper and is longer lasting and is more profound if less tangible, but more profound and real that anybody outside of Christ can ever experience. And we have that now. It's present already. And check this out. Look at the next verse. I, verse 19, will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Who's speaking here? Is that Isaiah? No, that's God. God is saying that he rejoices in his people. We have a God who loves us and who legitimately says, I am happy in you. I take my gladness in you, says God. I rejoice and enjoy the people that I have redeemed for myself. That is a present reality for you, believer. He loves you. He doesn't hate you. He doesn't scoff at you. He doesn't mock you. The living and true God loves you and rejoices in you. That's present and it's real and it's glorious and it's true. And let's go back and revisit verse 20 for just a moment. That sticky wicket that we couldn't figure out. What in the world is happening in verse 20? No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now we could take that as some sort of literal prophecy. Okay? But I think it's better here because this is a poem to think of this as some sort of poetic language. In fact, isn't that the very hallmark of poetry itself? Poetry uses th such things as symbolism, simile, metaphor, imagery. What's happening in verse 20? Here it is. The power, the fear, and the terror of death itself has been blunted and dulled in the gospel. Right? The power, the fear, the terror, the grief of death has been blunted for us in the gospel. Death itself has in some ways been bent back. Is it present? Yeah, it is. We still die. We're not in heaven yet. But its power over us to fear has been seriously altered by the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me take you to a passage that I think might help clarify this. Go with me to the book of Hebrews for just a moment. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 2. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15 says this. I'll give you a second to get there. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death... 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and look at verse 15 here, deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the fear of death, the power that death has over us has been annulled in the gospel. And I think that's what Isaiah is trying to convey here in poetic language here, that the very pains and griefs that death would normally bring has been altered fundamentally for us in the gospel because we have our salvation in Christ. This is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that we, believers, do not grieve as those who have no hope. It's a verse that we use at almost every funeral because it's true. But those of us who are in Christ, we grieve differently. Do we miss those we love? Absolutely we do, but we don't grieve the same way because we know that in Christ, we're going to see our loved ones again in glory, right? So our grief is different. Now listen, as a pastor, part of my job, and I'm not saying it's my favorite part, but part of the job of a pastor is to do funerals. We're the persons who stand up here and try to say something intelligible that will bring hope and comfort. Okay, we, we, we also do some, some personal comforting and, and helping and encouraging with the family. But, but then when the funeral comes, we have to stand up here and say something that brings comfort. So what do we do? Well, I'll tell you, there's three different kinds of funerals. And every pastor who's done a funeral will know that this is true. A, there's the funerals that we do for believers. And those are the easiest ones that we do. Because when we do the funeral of a believer, we can stand up here in this pulpit and we can legitimately say, look, on the authority of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and based upon the credibility of this person's profession of faith in Jesus, I can tell you that this person is even now with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we can say that with the certainty of the gospel, but when we do the other two kinds of funerals, B, unbelievers, and C, those that we don't even know what, where their faith is at all, then when we get up here to talk, we have to be very, very careful that we don't give some kind of a false assurance. We certainly don't say platitudes like they're in a better place if, in fact, we know that they're not. And we don't say things like, he's a butterfly now or something like that, because that doesn't bring help and it's not even true. And so when, when, when a Christian dies, there's a sense in which the power of the grief and the terror and the fear of death has already been for us, bent back on itself and broken. It's been annulled. It's been dulled. So that we can stand up here and even in these grief-filled moments, we can offer a real word of gospel hope. And that's why Isaiah says, I think, in 6520, that death has been fundamentally changed for us in Messiah's kingdom. Does that make sense? I hope it does. And there's so much more here that we could go into about what is already true for us. Look at verse 23. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall there shall be, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. So we were, we're not laboring in vain. We have purpose. We have Messiah's kingdom, present reality, purpose. Now, last week, I need to uh, correct myself from last week. The scriptures are infallible, but the preacher is quite fallible. I made a little bit of a mistake last week, or at least I might have miscommunicated a bit. Remember in last week's sermon, I was talking about how Isaiah 
and 64, he's pleading with the Lord to rend the heavens and come down. Remember that? I was talking about the frustration that we sometimes feel when we, we minister for a long time, and you've probably felt this frustration too, and yet we look at the world and it, and it seems like such a dark and dismal place at times, right? And Isaiah, I was saying, after 60 years of ministry, he kind of comes to this frustration point where he just cries out to the Lord to rend the heavens, like, God, tear open the heavens and come down. Remember that? And it said something to this effect that Isaiah had been preaching for 60 years and that God never gave him a revival like Jonah got a revival and Jonah didn't even want it. Well, I was trying to convey this idea of Isaiah's longing for the return of the Lord, but in reality, there was a revival in Isaiah's 60 years. It, was, it took place in the kingship of Hezekiah. And so if I, if I conveyed a sense in which Isaiah's ministry was entirely futile, please, uh, let me correct myself this morning. It was not futile at all. Exhausting, yes. Frustrating, true. Futile, absolutely not. And Isaiah himself says this right here in our text this morning. He says in verse 23, They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. Isaiah knew the victory of gospel proclamation. He did. Isaiah had other high points in his ministry. Remember the story where he and Hezekiah pray and God thwarts the oncoming aggression of 185,000 Assyrian warriors. Remember that? Isaiah 37. So don't let me convey to you that Isaiah's ministry was futile. That wasn't the point. I was trying to convey last week of his longing for the Lord's return. And in the same way, there's a great encouragement here for us in verse 23, and it's a present reality. This is already true of us, that our labor is not in vain. Gospel Fellowship PCA is a very busy church right now, aren't we? And just look at the last week. One calendar week, what did we do? We had the Refresh Conference, trying to help churches minister to the disabled and the handicapped. Uh, we had a beautiful funeral. Pastor David did an amazing job at the funeral this week, preached the gospel really clearly. We were able to care for people. We have our missions conference happening right now, Wednesday night, Thursday night. Uh, we went out in the Compassion Project. We delivered some 40 meals into the community. We did some street evangelism. We had the leadership conference or leadership class started yesterday, three Saturday mornings. Coming up, we are a crazy busy church. You know how many meals we prepared just this week? Hundreds. I'm not even kidding. Those conferences, funeral, uh, ministry, we prepared hundreds of meals this week for people. And let me tell you this. Not one of them was in vain. Not one of them was in vain. Christ tells uh, at one point in the Gospels, that if you even give to a person a cup of cold water in his name, it is not in vain. And so, yeah, we get frustrated about the world today, but I don't ever want you to think even for a second that what you're doing for the kingdom of Christ doesn't matter. It absolutely does matter. Now let's finish up this morning in verse, um, well, I wish I could address verse 24, because look at the promise there. Wow. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear God's presence to us even as we pray. But I want to address verse 25 because there's a number of, uh, number of creative interpretations about this verse. And this is another sticky wicket, I think, in the passage. All right, so what does this mean? 
The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy. And all my holy mountain, says the Lord. What's going on there? Well, no doubt there's somebody who has interpreted that literally. Okay. Uh, for some, their principle of interpretation is as literal as possible. For others, it's as important as that to consider the genre of the text. Like, what kind of material is this? It's obviously poetic. And so I don't, I don't take this to be some sort of over-literalized statement about um, the transformation of the zoological kingdom, that lions are going to change their eating habits from carnivorous to herb herbivorous. Um, but there's certainly here a sense, isn't there, that God is going to even, even transform the created order itself. Now, what that fully means, I don't know. Because the new heavens and the new earth, as he says in verse 17, are certainly going to be beautiful beyond our greatest imagination. That is certainly true. There's a sense in which all of the creation is longing for the return of the Lord. Romans chapter 8, there's a sense in which the creation itself is subjected to futility and the animal kingdom is a very violent place. If you don't believe that, just watch National Geographic on TV, right? But let me just throw out a possibility that I, I discerned from reading Calvin's commentary on this verse. You know, sometimes in the Bible, don't forget, that human beings are symbolized with animals, right? So for instance, one of, the, one of the great motifs of discipleship is that we are the lambs of God. Psalm 23, John 10. One of, one of the images of scripture is that false teachers in the church are wolves. Uh, the Proverbs say that the righteous are as bold as a lion. Scripture says we ought to be as innocent and dove, as doves and as shrewd as serpents. And so it's not altogether unusual for the scriptures to symbolize human nature in animal form, right? And so if that were true about this passage, then what is being said here is that even the violent nature within us will be transformed and softened and made more merciful by the gospel. We will experience real, true change, born-again change, spirit-filled change in the sake of the gospel. Listen to this quote from John Calvin. Here's his words here. He says, Here we are taught what is the nature of men before the Lord. Convert them and receive them into his fold, for they are cruel and untamed beasts and only begin to abstain from doing any injury when the Lord subdues their wicked inclination and their furious desire to do harm. Calvin takes this passage not so much as pertaining to the biological, zoological kingdom, but as what takes place in the human heart when one is changed and softened and transformed and renewed by the gospel itself. And interesting, in this little line here, there's only one animal that isn't changed. Who stays the same? Well, the serpent continues to eat the dust. A serpent from Genesis 3, whose curse, symbolizing the devil, whose curse is to slide along the ground and to eat the dust. For him, there is no mercy. No clemency for the evil one and those like him. Let's pray as we thank God for what is already true 
and yet what is not yet fulfilled in his kingdom. Heavenly Father, we do love you and thank you. It's true, Lord, that we are already loved, that we already have a deep and true abiding gladness in the gospel. It's true already, Father, that our labor is not in vain. It's true already, Father, that you are changing our nature from wicked into more and more likeness of Christ as you sanctify us through your Holy Spirit. And yet, God, the not yet of this passage also gives us something to long for, something to look forward to. Lord, there's still many pains and griefs in this world And we trust and believe, God, that one day you will truly wipe away every tear from every eye. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.